Hi, my name is Rick. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 15, 17 to 23. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction and to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than, that of, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Naomi. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Hi, my name is Cor. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in 1 John 13, 1 through 5. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word to us. We pray today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would hear your voice calling to us, that your word would bring life and light to us that you would conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <laughs> hey, before we um, open the text and get into the sermon this morning, I just want to talk to you about something real quick for a couple minutes. Um, many of you are aware that over the last several weeks, there's been, uh, shall we say, a, a national conversation about abortion, except that it hasn't been a conversation. It's been the taking of abortion to new radical extremes. 
And many Christians, rightly so, have been uh, angered by it and outraged by it and brokenhearted about it. But one of the things we believe at New Life Church, and this is something Pastor Brady has said repeatedly over the last couple weeks, is we want to move beyond outrage toward outreach. And it's one thing to sort of say, whoa, this is wrong. And then sometimes that is necessary, especially when we can do something about it. But often I think we stop there and think our job is done, to post something on Facebook. Uh, instead of saying, how can we actually help? How can we come around those who are hurting? How can we eliminate the situations that lead people to such choices? How can we make those choices even not even the best or most viable? And so several years ago, New Life Church began our dream centers of Colorado Springs. And even though it doesn't belong to New Life, it's definitely an initiative that is largely funded by New Life. And, and the first uh, instance of it was a women's clinic, which has seen thousands and thousands of women and saved different lives of babies and pregnancies. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, and you can give God praise for that. And as we got into that, we discovered that actually that's one piece of, of, of the situation in our community, but actually also there are a lot of uh, single moms and their kids who are fleeing situations that are unsafe, domestic violence and situations that put them in very vulnerable places. And that if the church was going to encourage people to, uh, to keep their pregnancies and keep their babies, that the church also needs to come and help walk with them through life, even when life uh, places them in very difficult and vulnerable places. And so several years ago, New Life then cre uh, launched Mary's Home, which is an apartment complex for single moms and their kids. And to help them over the course of a few years with career training and counseling and all of the stuff to help them uh, uh, enter into society in a way that they might not have imagined as possible before. Well, Mary's Home is going really well and there's expansions to it that are happening and it's really wonderful. But here's something exciting for us at New Life Downtown. They have asked us if we would be a hosts to these moms and their kids on Sundays. What an amazing opportunity. Now, it's not a requirement that they go to church or anything like that, but, but it's a beautiful invitation where we get to literally wrap around and, and care for some of these moms and their kids. So here's what we're looking for. We're looking for seven people. It could be seven couples. It could be seven families. It could be seven uh, or groups of roommates. I mean, however you want to do this, seven people um, to once a month, one Sunday a month, pick up these moms and their kids from Mary's home. Uh, they don't have transportation, so you have to pick them up. Mary's home is in the south central part of Colorado Springs. You pick them up, bring them to church, host them while they're here, take care of them, help them know, you know, all the stuff at Palmer that you all now know and that, that someone you may not know, uh, and then take them back to Mary's home after service. That's it. And so now you already, whether you know it or not, if when you give to New Life Church, you're giving to the Dream Centers, you're giving to the Women's Clinic at Mary's Home, a big part of our outreach giving goes to that every year. I think New Life gives close to 20% away of everything that's, that comes in. So you're already contributing, but this is a different way to contribute. This is a way to say, well, I could do that. I could do one Sunday a month. Shoot, we're going to church anyway. Let's go pick them up, host them, sit with them, care for them, and drive them back. So if you're interested in that, go and speak to Pastor Jay Benson about that in the lobby. Does that sound good? Yeah. Let's be that kind of church. Amen. Well, we're in a series called Kingdom and Chaos, and it's a series through a book in the Old Testament called uh, 1 Samuel. And, and really, the story here, we've called it Kingdom and Chaos because this whole book, these stories in 1 Samuel, are a reflection of how God establishes his kingdom on earth. 
And in the midst of our world of chaos, in the midst of our rebellion and revolt against his kingship. And so parts, some of these episodes are about how we participate in God's kingdom uh, being established. And some of these stories are about how we resist and reject it and what happens when there's more chaos that is produced. And now I'm also aware that uh, calling a series Kingdom and Chaos sounds like it's a Netflix you know, series. And that's okay. And so maybe it's helpful to think about these sermons as episodes that are part of the series. So episode one, Hannah's Prayer, uh, is about this woman who, who can't give birth to children, who prays and cries out to God, and God says, I'm going to bless you, and your son is going to be a prophet who will anoint kings in Israel. And then week two was Samuel's call, where Samuel grows up in the house of the Lord and learns to hear the voice of God, and then becomes this prophet that speaks the truth to power, even the power known as Eli, whom he kind of loved like a dad. And then week three, we talked about uh, episode three, I should say, was the Ark, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the Ark of the Covenant is being taken, and we learn some lessons about how to interact with the holy God, who himself is king. And then episode four was about Israel's foolish demand for a king and God's willingness to work with them to say, look, this is the wrong timing, this is the wrong type of king, and actually this is the wrong motivation for asking for a king, but I'll work with you. And God's graciousness in redeeming even what we think is our worst mistake. And so today is episode five, and we're talking about Saul's failure. Saul's failure as king. But I want to frame it for you this way. This is really a reflection about power. Now, any of you in the room love superhero movies? Yes, Marvel, DC, you're ready for the new Avengers Endgame. How is this thing going to happen? Is there some play on time here probably? Uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, I think the superhero comic book, the height of the comic book phase was in the era where the United States was establishing itself as a superpower and they were evil superpowers. And so we were unashamedly talking about power in positive ways. But it's interesting to me to look at the movies that are being made now because it's such a reflection of our age because you can't get a few minutes into a superhero movie without the subtext of the storyline being that we're really uncomfortable with how much power these superheroes have. And so even the Avengers, it's like, shouldn't we be concerned here that they can destroy the world and all of this stuff? And it's really a reflection that in our culture today, we don't know what to do with power. We don't know what to do with it. And maybe it's because we've seen in different ways uh, instances where power is misused. And so you think about the Me Too movement, or you think about other places where you say, well, power has really been misappropriated and misused. And so the backlash to all of that from the culture around us is to say, well, um, maybe we shouldn't have power at all. Maybe nobody should have any power. Maybe we should flatten out all hierarchies. Maybe we should eliminate our org charts. And we should just return power to the people. And this is sort of a Marxist critique. It's a way of saying power is bad. Hierarchies are bad. Don't give anybody power. Just power back to the people. And I want to say this morning, I don't think that's the answer. Just to show you my hand. I don't think that's the answer. And I think when you look at these, story, these stories here about Saul's failure, I would like to suggest to you that God has a different answer to the problem of power. It's not that God ignores it. It's not that God says, oh, power is never problematic. Of course power is problematic. But the scriptures and the gospel itself has a different response to power than the response we might expect. 
In our human understanding, we think, oh, the answer, power is evil. Nobody should be in charge. Nobody's, let's just do a, a popular vote. Let's decide everything by the people. Let's flatten out all structures. And, and, and I want to say to us this morning, what if there's another way to think about power? Are you ready? <laughs> all right. First Samuel we just, we left, off, we left off in chapter 10 last week. Uh, 10, 11, and 12 are a sequence of events that in the ancient Near East was part of a formal kingship ritual. So the first part of the ritual was anoint the king. The second part of the ritual was the king would establish himself through a military victory, which is what happens in, in 1 Samuel 11. And then the third part of the ritual was the king's kingship is confirmed. And so that happens in 1 Samuel 12, and that's where we'll pick up the story. And Samuel says, Now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Re realize, notice there that both things are said. The king you have chosen, and then the Lord has set that king over you. Both are being said. And then he goes on and he says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Isn't this amazing? It's like God saying, you chose something I did not want you to have, but listen, we can find a way to make this work. I can redeem this. I can recalculate the route. I can make so if you're willing to, if you'll fear the Lord, if you and your king obey God, it's all going to work. It will be well. I can, God, I'm a creative God. I can work with that. But then he says the warning in verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, if, you, if only there was a soundtrack when you were reading the Bible, I think you would hear, dun, dun, dun. Because this is the ultimate foreshadowing. Here it is in, in chapter 12. Here's the terms. Obey, it'll be well. Disobey, it will not be well. And the next few chapters are all about Saul's disobedience. The story couldn't be framed in a more obvious way. It's there for us. So I want us to just notice fairly quickly here three ways that Saul misuses his authority in his disobedience to God. And the first instance of this happens in chapter 13. So Saul's awaiting, there's a, there's a enemy, the enemies are encamped, and Saul's waiting for Samuel to show up. And he says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. Okay, this is that moment when you're the leader and you're waiting, and you're kind of losing leadership equity. Like people are leaving now, and you're like, oh no, I've got to do something. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Offering. Now, this may not mean much to you and to me, but the way that things were set up for Old Testament Israel is kings were supposed to be kings and priests were supposed to be priests. So kings, this is your boundary. This is your limitations of your calling. And priests do offerings. Kings don't do offerings, right? But then uh, it goes on and it says, as soon as he had finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Dun, 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 dun. You know? Now we're like, oh no. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, well, I mean, what had happened was when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So this is my favorite. So I forced myself <laughs> and offered the burnt offering. Now, Samuel, ordinarily, uh, everything went against everything in me. I'm such an obedient king, but I forced myself and went ahead and did it. 
It's just a man. It's like such a strange phrase. And then the story goes on. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have, have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Isn't that amazing? The Lord would have established Saul's kingdom for, yes, God would have worked with him. But now he says, verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. This is a little happy foreshadowing of what's coming. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I think the observation that we make from this story here is that Saul overstepped the bounds of his authority. Saul overstepped the bounds of his authority. This is one of the ways that we misuse power. When we overstep the bounds of our authority. Listen, one of the reasons why leaders fall is because they don't think the rules apply to them. And so you have company policies and you have all of this normal stuff. But the CEO is like, well, I'm, I'm the founder. I mean, like, I wrote those policies. It doesn't, doesn't apply to me. And somewhere along the way, we overstep because one of the great traps of power is starting to believe that the rules don't apply to you. You're an exceptionally gifted person, so you think you're the exception to the rules. You say, well, I mean, others, maybe if others watched that movie, they would be tempted into lust, but not me. I can watch that whole season and be fine. Or maybe if someone else put themselves in that situation, they wouldn't. But, but not, I mean, I can skim a little off the top. I can mischarge a reimbursement. I mean, that's not a big, I, I, you know, I, I do a lot for the organization. And so Saul oversteps the bounds of his authority. But then chapter 14, and we're actually going to come back to chapter 14 next week to talk about Jonathan and his armor bearer. But toward the end of this chapter, a very strange thing happens. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, and so Saul had laid on an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. They're, try they're in the middle of a battle with the Philistines. Now, I don't know much about battles. I've never been in a physical, literal fight. But I'm going to guess that when you're hard-pressed by an enemy, fast that's not the time to fast. It's probably not the moment he said, no one eats. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that's the right move. So none of the people tasted food. Now, look how this backfires. When all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his spear that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Ah, sugar. He's waking up. Ha, ah, ha, ready. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. They're thinking, oh, no. Oh, no. And then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Saul rashly exercises his authority. 
This is the second thing we see. He, he rashly exercised his authority. No, let's do this. Let's not do that. This is one of the other leadership mistakes is you feel pressed. You feel insecure. You feel uncertain. You feel pressured. You're stressed out by the deadline. And so you make hasty decisions. No one's going home until we figure this out. Or no more vacations until this or that. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, is that the right use of your authority? But here Saul is rashly exercising his authority. You can see that all the externals kind of pointed to Saul being a good leader, but he's mismanaging it. He's, he's really fumbling this. Then you get to the third piece of this episode, the final kind of scene, if you will, of episode five. Chapter 15. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. What a phrase. And I'm not sure how we are to understand this, but at the very core of this, there's a sense in which God is grieved by this. It wasn't what he wanted, but he was willing to work with him, would have established Saul's kingdom, and then his repeated disobedience, he says, oh, I'm grieved about this. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all nights. So much emotion. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. Here's Saul just presenting again. Saul's like a pro at appearances. And he says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Clearly you have not. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen? I mean, this is, there's a bit of drama in this, but there's a lot of comedy in this. Like, honestly, this could be, the scene could be that Saul comes, Samuel, I've done everything you said. And then, like, little sheep walks by, Bah! you know. And Samuel's like, oh, yeah, then what's that? You know? like, there's a bit of comedy in the midst of this high drama. What is it? And Saul said, they've brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. Basically, Saul's saying, I know what you said but I improved on your instructions. I know what God said, but I improved on it. I made it a little better. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I'm gonna just stop you right there, bro. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission. You know what I think this final scene shows us? That Saul actually underestimated his authority. Though you are little in your own eyes. And actually, I think this is the key of it. Of all these chapters, of all of these things about Saul that we notice, maybe the very crux of the matter is this. When we misunderstand our identity, we will misuse our authority. When you misunderstand your identity, when you don't know who you really are, you will misuse your authority. And so Samuel says, you can almost hear it with a broken heart after crying all night. He says, though you are small in your own eyes, are you not the head? Identity. The Lord has anointed you king over Israel. Authority. And the Lord sent you on a mission. Purpose destiny. But where did it all go wrong for Saul? He was little in his own eyes. What a tragic irony 
Saul, who was head and shoulders above the rest. Saul, who was, as we said last week, tall, was little in his own eyes. And isn't that sometimes how it is? The people who have all the external signs of success, they've got the money, they've got the stuff, they've got, you know, they're smart, they're all, they've got everything working for them, quote unquote, by the world's standards. But in their own eyes, they're nothing. Think about the deep insecurity that plagues some of the biggest empire builders in the world. They're trying to prove something to themselves, to their fathers. Ah, I didn't come from much, but I'll show them. I'm a self-made man. And Samuel says, well, that's where it all went wrong. You misunderstood who you were. You misunderstood your identity, and because of that, you misused your authority. See, listen to you guys. I think the story of Saul's failure is actually an echo of Adam's failure in the garden. It's an echo of that. This is, this is the same story played out in a different way. Because this is how it begins in the garden. God makes human beings, Genesis 1, 26. He says, let us make them in our image and let them rule. Sometimes people stop and they say, well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? You know what I mean? Does that mean like God has a nose or like two ears? Or what, what is this image thing? Do you know in the ancient world, when a king wanted to establish his domain, he would set up his image in all the farthest reaches of the empire. It happens early in early kind of Mesopotamian rulers, but it even happens by the time of the New Testament with Rome. Whereas Rome extends all the way up into what becomes what we eventually call Germany, Rome has to set up viceroys, vice regents, people who would rule the region and represent the power of Rome. And so there's a sense in which to be made in his image, this, there's no mass media, there's no Twitter, there's no way to know who's in charge of, those, of this region of the world. And so what they would do is they'll say, well, let's carve an image of the ruler and set it up. And so when God says in Genesis, let us make them in our image and let them rule, it's the most dignifying thing about you. You were made in God's image to reflect and represent his rule in the world. And maybe just to see how stunning it is, you need to think about the other stories that were told in the ancient world, Babylon, Babylon had their own myths of creation and Marduk was the great Babylonian god and Marduk and his sub-level of gods, they didn't want to do any work. And so they said, let's create human beings as slaves so that they can do all of our grunt work. Now imagine if you woke up Monday morning and you're like, I'm just a slave of the gods. And actually that is how we talk. You get up Monday morning and you're like, Another day, another dollar. Just at the grind. Just busting my honey, trying to, you know, work for the man. In the midst of that Babylonian lie, the Hebrew fathers and mothers sit down with their children. And they say, no, that's not it. No, no, no. Yahweh, who is king of the universe, made you in his image. What? You're not a slave of Yahweh. You're the viceroy of Yahweh. You're the vice regent. 
You represent him. You actually are supposed to reflect and represent his love, his wisdom, his order, his justice, his peace in the world. That is subversive theology right there. And that's how Genesis gets written. It gets written down while they were slaves in Babylon as a way of saying, you, you, you might think you're a slave, but actually you're a king. You might think you're just a pencil pusher, just trying to get the job done, but you're a king and a queen. You're royalty. But look what happened in the garden. So the snake comes to Adam and Eve and says, look, did, did God really say? And then, then the snake says, just eat of the fruit and you will be like God. But someone should have told Adam and Eve, you already are. Get thee behind me, Satan. I don't need a fruit to assert my own identity. I'm already made in his image. But humans misunderstood their identity and therefore began to misuse their authority. And from that moment in the garden, everything, instead of the world coming back together, instead of human beings cultivating a garden outward and being fruitful and multiplying this flourishing life outside of Eden, instead what happens is they multiply division and they multiply brokenness, broken human God relationship, broken male and female relationship, broken Cain and Abel brother relationship, broken relationship with the ground and the earth, and on and on it goes because you still have authority. It's just that now you're misusing it. Now, instead of your authority bringing blessing, it's extending the curse because you got your identity wrong. But thanks be to God that the gospel doesn't end there. This is why, you guys, this is why Matthew opens by showing Jesus as the son of David. He's the true king. This is why Luke opens by showing Jesus is the descendant of Adam. He's the true human. Jesus is the true human and the true king who knew his identity as the son of God and used his authority to serve and to rescue and to redeem. Did you catch the gospel reading this morning in John 13? It says, and Jesus who knew that the Father had given all things to him and knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, stood up and started barking orders. No. And Jesus, who knew everything had been entrusted to him and that he had come from God and was going to God, took off his robe and began to wash their feet. That's what power looks like. That's what power looks like. You see, it doesn't just end there. Because of Jesus, God in Christ has restored your identity and reinstated your authority. Now, let me tell you why this matters, you guys, because some of you, you've been around church or some of you have heard sort of little snippets of what you think Christians believe. And so somewhere along the way, whatever the reason, whether you've, you've heard this in church or you've heard this through the grapevine or you've heard this from other Christians or you just heard this on some Christian talk show or whatever, somehow along the way we think that we are just sinners saved by grace. Well, brother, I deserve hell, but God forgave my sin, but I'm just a grateful sinner. Do you know that nowhere in the New Testament 
Are Christians called sinners? Did you know that? Nowhere. Do you know when Paul addresses a letter to some pretty lousy Christians? <laughs> he calls them saints. Paul, you crazy. These are not saints. Paul says, to the saints. What? When John writes to his churches, he says, dear children, dear children. So don't you ever say that stupid line, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. <laughs> yeah, that is Eeyore. <laughs> That's not what the New Testament says about you. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, you are no longer slaves, but you are children of God. Oh, do you get what Paul's doing in Romans? He says, once you were, we say this every Sunday at communion, we say Christ died for us while we were still sinners, but that is not what we are. While we were still sinners, that's Romans 5. By the time you get to Romans 8, Paul's like, and we are children of God. And if children, then heirs with him. Heirs with him. Your identity has been restored. Your authority has been reinstated. Romans 5 says, how much more shall we reign in life with him? Reign in life? That doesn't sound like just a sinner squeaking by. We're going full Eeyore now. <laughs> Romans, reign in life. And I don't even know what exactly Paul means by this in, in, in Corinthians, but he tells the Corinthians when they're fighting among themselves, he says, guys, you got to figure out how to settle these disputes because don't you know that you're going to judge angels one day? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but that sounds incredible. And Paul's trying to say, y'all don't understand who you are. You don't even know. You don't even know. We are not mere mortals fumbling about in the dark. We are a royal priesthood called out of darkness into his marvelous light to show the world what God looks like, to show the world what his love looks like, to show the world what God's wisdom looks like, to show the world what God's peace looks like. And I want to say to you, church, maybe the root of all of our struggles is you don't actually know how much power you really have. You don't actually understand how much authority you actually have. Moms, if you're the parent that stays at home, you're not just a mom. Do you know how much power you have to bless your child? to speak into them, to shape them. If you're the dad that stays home, fathers, do you know how much power you have? Like fathers, maybe men have abdicated our roles in, in, in our households and in our relationships because we think, well, it doesn't really matter if I'm here or not because the house just carries on running. Do you know how much power you really have to look your child in the eye and say, I love you? Do you know how much authority comes with your words? You're not just a salesperson. 
just a realtor or just a construction worker or just a nurse. You're a king and a queen on that construction site. You're royalty in that college class. You're a representative of King Jesus in the world. And so when you step into these places, it's not your paycheck that makes you matter. It's not your job description that makes you significant. It's the fact that you're made in the image of God, crowned with glory, Psalm 8 says. Paul says, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, a child and also an heir. And you say, you know, this world is a little bit messed up. But in my little corner of the world today, God help me to reflect your wisdom. God help me to represent your love. God help me to show what you're like as I go to my community college class today, as I, as I stay at home in the care of children today, as I step into a classroom to teach students today. Wherever you go, you go as a royal representative of King Jesus. You see, the gospel's answer to power is not the Marxist answer. The gospel's answer to power is not to say, ooh, power bad, scary power. The gospel's answer to power is not to eliminate it, but to reshape it by reminding us who we are. C.S. Lewis called it the intolerable compliment. God has paid us the intolerable compliment of trusting us of dignifying us, and we're like, oh, really? <laughs> Reshaping, reminding us who we are, where our power comes from, and what our power is for. Amen. And Jesus, who knew all things had been given to him, and that he had come from God, and that he was going to God, took off his robe and began to wash their feet. That's what your power is for. The answer is not to make yourself feel less powerful, not to pretend that you don't have power. Look, whether you actually have structural power or not because you're the leader of a team or the manager of this or a teacher in a classroom, whether you have those structures or not, you have an authority from God. Amen. You have an authority from God to do this, to reflect his love, his wisdom. Though you are little in your own eyes, God says to you today, are you not the head over the tribes? Has not the Lord anointed you king, queen? And has not the Lord sent you on a mission? Identity, authority, purpose. It's all there. And it's all back because of Jesus. Would you bow your heads this morning? Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.